the problem usually is that you were trying to explain something simply to a lay audience. And then they come in trying to prove that they know more than everybody and uh. say, oh, there are, there are subtleties here that they didn't mention. And therefore, they're dumb and we shouldn't invest in them. And it's like, no, I could have a conversation with you about all of that stuff, but it was geared to a specific audience. And so trying to redirect, if you, if you can tease out whoever the expert in the room is to engage you at a level and try and get them to have a follow-up conversation with your scientific team or something at that, that level without yourself sounding like a CEO who doesn't know any of the science, that's what you want to do. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. In the world of medical devices, time is usually of the essence. But here's the problem. Traditional product development processes are usually as slow as molasses. They cause delays and they're headaches for companies like yours. Greenlight Guru is the ultimate solution for medtech's biggest challenge. You may be facing lengthy development cycles that drain your resources and hinder progress, but we streamline the entire product development journey. We make it faster, we make it more efficient and less prone to hiccups. By centralizing your data management, automating your workflows and allowing real-time collaboration. It's all here. It's designed to propel your projects forward. And guess what? Regulatory compliance is built right in. It reduces the risk of costly revisions and ensuring you stay on track. With Greenlight Guru, you're not just developing products, you're accelerating progress, making a difference when it matters most. Don't let inefficiency hold you back. Embrace innovation with Greenlight Guru. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today, I got to talk with Blythe Caro, the COO at Neurogenesis, which is a brain health wellness company, and uh, she's leading the charge towards a major product launch in 2024. Previously, she was the president and COO at Everin Technologies, which is actually where I uh, was introduced to her. I actually first saw her give her pitch for that company 2021 at the MedTech Innovator, and it really impressed me. I was really impressed with her ability as a CEO and uh, her ability to present this pitch. So I've been wanting to talk to her ever since. At Everin Technology, she took that device to FDA breakthrough designation in three years. Previously, she was at Boston Scientific where she spearheaded the digital health strategy for the spinal cord stimulation line. Like I mentioned, she's just a really impressive person and very well-spoken. And I hope you can learn a lot from how to pitch to medical device investors and what it's like to be a first-time CEO. So I hope you enjoy this conversation on pitching to investors for a medtech audience. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host for today's podcast. And with me today is Blythe Caro. I'm really excited to have her to talk about pitching to investors. How do you put together a pitch or how, how do you go about approaching that, that whole process? Well, you know, for me, I think my background as a marketer really guides a lot of the pitching. Your, your investors and who you're pitching to, there's a different audience every time and you want any talk to engage them and hit them at the right level of detail and sort of knowledge base. I think I'm 
I am a biomedical engineer by training, but I think nowadays when I join new medical device companies, I'm the scientific dummy in the room because everybody else is a PhD. And so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck they're telling me and how I can boil that down to the dummies version of it. And so that's usually what I focus on. And then the arc of the story and making sure that whatever slide I'm covering, what's the next thing people want answered? Because if they're trying to answer other questions and you're going in another direction, they're not listening to you. And so you want to keep them engaged. How do you how do you anticipate that? Is it just trial by error or do you just have to keep bit. iterating? <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, you know, nowadays I have a lot of experience watching a lot of different people's pitches. And so that helps me. Um, every investor is going to have different advice on what they wanted to hear next. And so it can be really hard to be concise. I probably had 500 different pitches by the time I left Everin, and they were all different lengths, different focuses, different ways of trying to explain things because you're constantly trying to evolve and make sure that you're giving the right message. So, so yeah, there's a lot of trial and error, but I think the standard ones out there are standard for a reason. You want to start with a problem. You want that problem to be in the voice of who would pay for it. And then you want to start backing that up with how your strategy is founded in really good information and how you're going to execute on that. And, you know, it's early days, but whatever you can do to prove that you have already been executing on some kind of budget or ability to raise. That's something that's changed over the, I know the economic climate right now is is not as ideal as it had been. Have you seen some of those conversations changing um, with the economic climate or how that yeah. goes? No. I think it's the same. I mean, I yeah. think it's you still just you have to remember that you're not going to match with everybody you pitch to. And it's like dating and you're going to find people you click with and people you don't click with. And I think the hardest part a lot of times for entrepreneurs is to realize when things just got off on the wrong foot. Someone doesn't understand what you're trying to do. They're never going to get there. And whatever feedback they're going to give you on your pitch is maybe not that helpful, except for the general takeaway of you lost them somewhere. And how could you maybe not lose them next yeah. time? Because the problem isn't the details. It's the, usually for me, it's that they lost somewhere in the flow and you didn't answer some questions and got stuck on it. So you said you had nearly 500 pitches when you left that previous company. <laughs> it might be exaggerating, but I really feel like I'm not. <laughs> well, and you know, I'm sure every, every pitch gets tweaked a little bit. So do you just end with V500 version? That's the version you have, or do you actually have multiple different iterations that you use in different situations? Yeah, you definitely have different uh, iterations that use different situations. First of all, you always should have a version that you can mail out to people that you do not talk track over. And so you want your headings to be the takeaway on each slide and you want to guide them through that story because you can't talk over it. If you're talking, you want to reduce the imagery and things they have to read down to iconography as much as possible and talk to them so that they're not trying to interpret your slide. They're listening to you. And, and that change in how it's delivered is very important. So you have to have those two different ones. And then besides that, everybody goes through this flow of like, they make a deck, then people say, oh, I wanted this other information. So you start adding slides and then it becomes 
a 30 slide deck and it's way too much. So then you have them all out and you're constantly kind of adjusting the length of it. My advice to people is if they're asking really thoughtful questions where they want to know more about your business and how you're executing, it's okay that that wasn't in the slide because what that means is you engage them and they want to know more and you should be having those conversations face-to-face as much as possible. But if the questions they're asking you are very fundamental misses on the overall strategy of your company, then you pared it back too much. Okay. So if we were to just drop you in the office with an investor and you started having this conversation and maybe maybe you're a third of your way on your journey to your V500. So, I mean, there's probably things to learn, but you've also gotten pretty far along. How do you do you have someone else in the room with you taking notes or do you, I mean, so that you can engage without or, or I'm just curious, how do you log all of those questions that may come up? Um, because in the moment, you may not remember those later. But how does that work? Um, yeah, I like to keep a spreadsheet and, you know, I have, everybody has their different formats they like to work in. I'm normally in Excel or PowerPoint. And so I usually <laughs> a spreadsheet where I have the questions and what I think were very good answers. So, you know, a lot of times when you get into the due diligence, you'll get an email with a couple of questions and it's really nice to have some articulate things on hand that you can shoot back. And it, it also looks a lot better when it doesn't take you three to five days to answer questions they think you should know the answer to already. (laughs) You know, it it makes it nice and easy. Um, So yeah, I definitely keep, I track the questions. Um, Right now, I'm chief commercialization officer for a company called Neurogenesis. So I am not the one pitching. The CEO should always be the person pitching. And our CEO is great at pitching, but I make sure to take notes as she's pitching on ways to tweak the wording, Areas where in the flow, I had quite different questions and didn't feel like they got answered because as you go, it tends to ad lib a bit more and you want to reflect on it. And then I also take notes on whatever the questions were in the room. It's good to have a second person in the room for that, for sure. Yeah. What are the some of the things that you commonly see people having an issue with or investors looking at uh, a picture and, and just saying, well, you didn't do this, this or this, this common problems? Yeah, well, I so... I'll preface this with I do a lot of work with very early stage um, groups coming out of universities. And so some of this feedback is going to be at that level. And I think a lot of times you get people that come from a PhD space that don't realize how very different a pitch is to the entrepreneurial community than to a grant board. And the level of detail, the level of understanding they have about your space. And they a lot of times they very basically skip over the pain point and whether they're really addressing that need. And I think a lot of times in the tech world, the assumption that their solution is the right solution is a big assumption for the rest of us. And they have skipped over a lot of voice of customers. So I think you know, making sure you tweak it in that direction and making sure you demonstrate that you have been getting good custom uh, voice of customer. You, you did mention that earlier too. You said start with the problem and use it and or, or verbalize it in the voice of those who would pay for it. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. And I have to admit that I recently heard that same feedback from someone else to our pitch and it really resonated with me. So I reused it. So um, yeah. Yes. So far, I think that's that's fair. <laughs> but you know, for example, 
Neurogenesis has a product that is going to be um, marketed to concierge physicians for their patients to do in annual exams. Um, you you don't say, you know, the Alzheimer's fundraising community has this problem. What you say is that the number one concern of patients over 50 is brain decline and they're willing to pay out of pocket for it. And so that's how you position it is that there's a pain point for this payer and we're going to address that. Because otherwise you get, you start to dilute your story. Who's paying for it? How is this actually happening? And those are all the questions that the funding people are trying to get answered before they give you your money. Were there any moments in your pitch career where you thought, wow, I've been doing all of this wrong? Or there was an, was, were there any aha moments? Um, and if so, I don't know if you have any, uh, was there a story behind that or a situation? I always love hearing people's actual stories um, from, from the field. Time when I was doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, I think just early in my professional career, Public speaking made me very nervous, which people would not expect knowing me today because I will jump up yeah. in front of a crowd and talk. I have no problem. Um, and I think I'm very much like that chef from Ratatouille where he says anyone can cook. Anyone can pitch. You just have to practice. It is something you have to practice. You have to get up in front of people and practice it a few times in person, stand in front of people in your office and give the pitch a few times and get the wiggles out and get comfortable with it and get comfortable with the terminology. It takes a while to start getting comfortable. I mean, you really want to have done your pitch and tweaked it a couple of times before you get in front of any legit investors. Um, did, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I just was saying, you know, early on practice and the mistake a lot of people make is that they don't practice enough. So it sounds like, Maybe, I mean, if you were nervous early on, I'm really curious how that transitioned because a lot of people I talk to, public speaking is a struggle as well. But it's kind of like you said, it's just a muscle and you don't always realize when the when the pendulum swings the opposite way and you get excited versus nervous. Um, is that kind of how it worked for you? You know, it's it's funny because I will still get on a stage and there I'll kick into a talk and then there'll be a point where I realize that my body is having a huge sympathetic response to the fact that I'm on stage. I might feel shaky. You might actually hear a shake in my voice at a point. And I have to sort of acknowledge that moment and move on from it. And I think it actually, you know, everybody is a bit of a fast talker when they get on stage. I know I suffer from that. Yeah. And it, it's a good moment for me to pause and say, take a breath and do this more slowly. And just be aware of it and okay with the fact that this is sort of going to wash over your body. You just got to go with it. Um, you know, I think some of being aware of that is the fact that at Everin we dealt with the sympathetic and parasympathetic response. So I was more focused on it, <laughs> but, but for sure. Yeah. You're going to have that response and it's a somewhat healthy response. That's, that's a good point. You know, when I think about just getting on stage and presenting information, these people in the audience have Google at their disposal. So they have all the information in the world is what it feels like. And so I need to talk really fast, get it all out there. But I don't realize that there's 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 layers of, of this communication that's happening. It's not just relaying information. And I imagine this is accurate in pitching as well, or if not even more important, uh, that to, to connect on an emotional 
level as well. And so the pauses and the, the cadence, I imagine, would make a difference. But correct yeah. me. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, obviously. Very <laughs> correct. You know, I think that sometimes people try a little too hard to make some story about someone has the disease state and how horrible it is for them. And to a certain extent, we're like, okay, I get it. Can we move on to what you're doing to, to deal with the disease state? But but sometimes you can really have something impactful. I think one of the reasons why our pitch at MedTech Innovator was so impactful was actually the video that I started with, which was a video of someone who had used our device and spoke to how he got PTSD in the military, the impact it had on him and how his quality of life had changed from using our device. And that did most of the pitching for me. And, and you know, I, I do get complimented on my ability to pitch on my own. So I'm not saying that that was all of it, but it, it is something where I knew when we finished that video that it was pretty spectacular. And I was willing to give up a minute to a minute and a half of our overall pitch time just to be able to start with that video because I knew it was doing something for us in the beginning. Yeah. I think that's good advice that people could take uh, take to heart because it's well done. It was professionally, it, it looked very professional anyway. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's worth spending your money on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was good. It was, it was 100% worth everything we did to make that video happen. What about some of the questions you can anticipate from investors? And I don't know, we didn't really talk about this, but I don't know if you want to go into different levels of investors, whether VC versus angel or um, equity versus seed. I don't know if you want to talk to those or not, but um, however you want to go with that, are there questions you can anticipate from investors that may not be just uh, something you could brainstorm on your own if you had never been there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think first of all, the angel versus VC, seed, whatever, it really the titles aren't as important as are you free revenue or are you on the market, right? Okay. Like what are the milestones you've already achieved? And every investor is looking at this from the angle of, is this money going to do something positive for this company? And at the end of the day, am I increasing my money? You know, 99% of investors out there are not doing it 100% out of altruism and don't want to see a return on investment, right? So yeah. so remembering that these people are customers and we're trying to delight our customers to a certain extent is very helpful. And so you have to think about how they're viewing it. And they want to make sure that you are really a thing, right? So show them what your product looks like. Give some way to demonstrate that you're not just a bench top, you know, board with wires coming out of it, that you're being used on patients. Whatever, whatever advances you have made on the tech, demonstrate that in the best way you can. If you can hold it up and show it to them, hold it up and show it to them. Um, show them whatever traction you have made on a clinical aspect or science that backs it up. Show them that you're a real team that is functioning well together. And, you know, so many investors say it's the team. And I think if I were to add to that, it's not that they want the pedigree. What it means is ultimately they're investing in you and you're not going to get an investment from a guy that doesn't feel like he's your friend. And 
right back to that dating, right? Like you have to make a connection with these people. And if there's no connection, you're just banging your head into a wall. You know, nobody's going to say, oh yeah, these, that, that founder is really annoying, but I want to fund this company. This just doesn't. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I, I could see different ways to, to where you could show that you're not a good team. I mean, so, like you said, annoying or these different things, the negative side of that. How do you show the positive, uh, and, and especially across your team? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, honestly, the best way to talk about that is to point out some potential negatives that happen. The CEO needs to look like they are in charge of the team and the team respects them. And so, and this is specific, I think, somewhat to females. If you have males on your team that feel like they need to restate what you said because it wasn't clear to the investors, that's not going to play well. And I certainly have made mistakes in my past in fundraising thinking that elevating a male on my team or on the board would help an investment because men get invested more than than women. Uh, I think that actually backfired on us. And, mm. you know, they want to know who's in charge and who's running the ship and have faith that that team functions well and not in a dysfunctional manner. And so you have to demonstrate that. So. A lot of times we'll prep and say, okay, when I get into a room, you know, Marcus, you're my head of R&D. So if I have any questions about product development, I'm going to kick that to you. But everybody knows to wait until I kick it to them, right? And, you know, it just, you want it to seem as smooth as possible at all times. As smooth as you can make your pitch, you also want to make the, be, the, the ability to answer the questions smooth as well. And you have to be able to... It takes balance. You have to be able to accept a question that you think is completely off the mark and redirect it in a respectful way. And so that also can take some practice. And I tell people to practice their responses like you would for an interview, the STAR method. Tell me about the STAR method. I I, I feel like I should know this. I... <laughs> tasks, actions, and results. Okay. And the A are kind of the same, but basically, you know, you want to have it once again be a succinct 30 second story about something where there are results at the end or something like that. But you want to have practice responses to things. And to be fair, some of that just comes with practice, and you should be signing up for pitch events and things like that so you can get used to it. That makes sense. That story that you told about the uh, the the elevated male in the room maybe trying to cut you off or restate even that's that's really poignant. I'm wonder are there any other piece of advice you could have or you have for female uh, pitchers at the moment? I, I don't know if there's anything specific there. <laughs> well, I think women have a balance of feeling like they're maybe coming across as too feminine, and I don't think anybody should worried about coming across as too feminine or masculine. You do want to watch out for not sounding like you know what you're talking about or not sounding assertive. And so if you have an uptick at the end of things you say, so it ends like a question, mm. so you're not very sure of yourself, then then that's not the great way to end things. You want to end things on a down note. And sometimes when I'm talking to you, I end things as question as though, did I answer your question? <laughs> and so I have to watch out for that myself. And so I think in that term, you know, I had a friend in Springboard, which is specific to female CEOs, who had a very high pitched voice and was worried that it didn't carry gravitas. And I'll, I'll tell you, she's doing very well. 
And what gives her her gravitas is the fact that she's kick-ass and she has a PhD and she knows what she's talking about. So nobody cares about the tone of her voice. Right. Um, but she was very worried and got a lot of feedback about, well, I don't know if people can take you seriously. If those people can't take you seriously, they're not the right match. And, you know, you hear it all the time. You have to do like 100 pitches to get investment. And the fact is that you're going to have to do a bunch of pitches to a bunch of different people. You just have to find the one or two that work for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I I think there are probably things that you have to know, but but ultimately, I agree. You know, it's just it it comes down to your competence. So that's really that's really cool. What are some things that maybe you as a pitch uh, a pitcher uh, dreaded? Uh, one one thing I think of like, oh, what about your exit strategy? And and a lot of companies I talk to, they want they want to sell to a strategic before they ever get commercial. And maybe that's not really what people want to hear when they're when they're investing in a company. I don't know, you know. But what what? How do you handle those questions? Or or were there any questions that you really would rather they didn't ask? Yeah, it's not about specific questions, but I'll say there there are two things where it's frustrating. One is where they just don't buy into your strategy and try and convince you of a completely different strategy. Mm. And yes, you want to take feedback and evolve if you need to pivot. And part of being a startup CEO is knowing when to stick to your guns and when to pivot. The other is if you're pitching to like an angel group, this happens a lot in angels, where they've got one expert in the room who tells them that you're just completely off base because of XYZ. And that can happen very often in angel groups, unfortunately. And the, the problem usually is that you were trying to explain something simply to a lay audience. And then they come in trying to prove that they know more than everybody and uh. say, oh, there are, there are subtleties here that they didn't mention. And therefore, they're dumb and we shouldn't invest in them. And it's like, no, I could have a conversation with you about all of that stuff. But it was geared to a specific audience. And so trying to redirect, if you, if you can tease out whoever the expert in the room is to engage you at a level and try and get them to have a follow-up conversation with your scientific team or something at that, that level without yourself sounding like a CEO who doesn't know any of the science, that's what you want to do. Yeah. That's good. What are some of the ways you use to tease tease out those people? I can. That seems like it could be difficult, especially if you have a smug, smart guy in the back of the room just waiting to pounce. I don't know. Uh, I mean, to be fair, often you don't have to do much because they will. <laughs> okay, <stop>. <laughs> that makes <laughs> sense. I can see that. It's basically just waiting, letting, making sure there's enough time for everybody to ask their questions. I guess. What are some? Uh, one of the other questions I had early on, I was thinking about this is uh, if an investor, maybe you're like, you, you're, you are on a roll, you're doing your thing and someone interrupts your pitch and really completely takes you off in a different direction. I guess in post you, or, or in uh, post-mortem, you think, okay, I need to ch- answer those questions before they get there. Um, kind of like you were saying earlier, but h- how do you keep your cool or how do you, how do you handle those situations? I mean, usually I start with, these are really great questions, <laughs> you know, because usually <laughs> They are good questions. There's a reason why they have them. Nine times out of 10, that person is asking questions other people haven't heard. And so it's a good thing. Does that mean there isn't the 10% where someone is just throwing gunk in the works and messing you up? Yes. But, you know, it happens. I think if you feel like things are really getting off track, you can say something along the lines of, 
oh, I have a slide that covers this. I can flip to it or we can go through, you know, the flow. And, and a lot of times they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Like, go ahead and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You want to try and, as, but usually I, I'm like, questions are great. I don't have a problem with someone interrupting the flow of my pitch. Yeah. You have to get to a point where you're comfortable enough in the pitch where you can ad lib in it and you can take breaks from it and you can pick back up on the the string of whatever you were talking about. Um, that being said, when I first started pitching for everyone, I wrote out word for word what my pitch was and made it exactly perfect to what I wanted to be. And I memorized it. And then once I got comfortable with the memorized version of it, then I started to move off of that because I wanted to make sure that I was expressing things the right way before I started tweaking things. If we zoom out, because I'm, I'm thinking of you memorizing this pitch, if we zoom out a little bit, because you're also in that moment, I assume the CEO of a company uh, or leading a company in some form or fashion, what does that look like in uh, the day-to-day -day operations of, of your, your work? I mean, because it seems like that's going to, that's taking up a lot of your brain space when you're going to pitching. Is that what you're doing full-time in that moment? You know, I will say that the biggest disruption was to the other guys in my office with me. We had like a really big room and they were just, <laughs> hearing me pitch all the time and have their headphones on. Um, but, you know, for for me, it's you, it gets to be such second nature that you can switch from the pitch to back to whatever you're working on. And it's more disruptive to the other stuff I was working on that I had to pull my brain away from an Excel program to do a pitch. Uh, but, you know, once again, I had just gotten to a point where practice had made perfect. And so I was I was ready for those things. Yeah, and if you just if you're not there yet, you've got to do mock versions of it. Get your friends to get on a Zoom meeting with you and pitch to them, and have them ask questions and start documenting questions and come up with the answers to the questions. It's a lot of prep to be ready to start pitching. And when you're ready to start pitching, you really should already have a due diligence room ready to go. And so you should have thought through a lot of these questions already. Yeah, that's that's good advice. So. Is it, I'm just curious, is there a time that you look back and you're like, that was a really fun one, like your favorite moment? And I wonder if you could describe why. Uh, I think, honestly, my first pitch forever was super fun. Really? It <laughs> was terrifying. I love crowd engagement. And so I got up in front of a crowd of hundreds, I don't know how many hundred, and pitched. And to me, that was super fun the to hear people come back to us after that having connected with the story to me that was great i actually was very sad in medtech innovator that it was during all the shutdown stuff and we couldn't pitch in person yeah. because i i find that to be really fun it is to be fair easier to pitch on a computer screen because if you need to you can have your script and you can see pitch and you can see the people and do all the things um, and it makes it a lot smoother and you don't have the ums that I normally have in things or whatever. But the in-person engagement to me is always more fun. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that was really cool. So when that happened, did you, what kind of feedback did you get? Was it one of those moments where you're still nervous or were you? Oh, absolutely. To the point. Super nervous. Yeah. 
Um, definitely had that moment where I realized my whole body was shaking on stage, even though I had been talking and thought for a split second, do I remember the rest of the speech? <laughs> you know? So yeah, I guess maybe that's like the one area of adrenaline junkie that works for me because I hate <laughs> I hate horror films, any of that other stuff. <laughs> but for me, that that it's fun to present at this point. But and I, I back that up with at the beginning of my career, that was probably the most terrifying thing you could have told me to do. Do you think the crowd could tell? Could tell that I was nervous? Yeah, well, I mean, in that that moment when you had that when you could feel your body shaking. Possibly. But I don't think it hurts you. Yeah. I think it humanizes you and lets people connect with you, especially if you take that breath and then continue and nail it, then people are just like, yeah, get it. Very cool. Do you, so I don't know how many different uh, pitches you've made for different companies or, or whatever, but is there a template you use or something like that? I'm always looking for things that we can give to our audience as, as, as tools that they can kind of use, or do you recommend not doing that at all? I mean, what, what are your thoughts or recommendations? I I don't really have a specific template, mostly because every pitch has a different time length that you have to do. And so sometimes you just can't include all the information. You have to figure out what best tells your story. One of the best examples of that actually is in MedTech Innovator, the video contest, uh-huh. which not to be confused with the video I used in the beginning of the pitch, but um, we, everyone did win for best video. And the storytelling and trying to get it under the time limit and fit all the pieces you needed to tell a good story was different for every company because you only had so much time. Um, So my first pitch ever, my first foray into entrepreneurialism, which did not work, but I still think it's an amazing idea, was a company called Cardio Boost. It was when I was a Zumba instructor and thought we should have wearables in the work group workout class to track us and see how we're syncing with the instructor and all this stuff. And um, I I literally just found the pitch the other day on YouTube where it was like one of those weekend things where you got together a team and made a pitch. We did very well in it. I mean, people were like loved the idea. We couldn't figure out how to get the science to work at the time. It's like over a decade ago. Oh, Maybe wow. it will work now. But um, <laughs> so, but it was you know this I it, you want to inspire people with an idea, right? Like this will be fun and engage people in a workout space and drive people to the gym or this is, you need to have some way of proving that it's not just your idea, but the rest of the world agrees with you that this is a great idea. Uh, It either has to be so intuitive that everybody gets it, or you have a way of demonstrating that someone else that is a well-established person is excited or something, right? Um, you have to have thought through the usefulness of it. You have to establish yourself as someone who can help make it happen. And then from there, it's all details. Cool. You mentioned, you mentioned, uh, working with little incubator or, or startups or kind of talking to them. I don't know. Advising is that, I, I don't exactly know your role there. Yeah, I do. I do a lot of like entrepreneur in residence and advising and I work with, um, few different universities, my alma maters, some local and other. So yeah, it's fun for me. I like to get back that way. How does that conversation start when you first start talking to those little companies? Are there specific questions they typically come to you with? It really depends on the format. So, you know, it can be everything from helping figure out who needs the micro grant to get to the next stage to 
helping them figure out, are they ready to go from research to a company idea, market evaluation, or it can be very specific to their pitch and how they're communicating. Um, and sometimes I'm, I'm just an advisor to the CEO on things that are popping up strategically. Okay. So it really varies. Um, but what I do find a lot of times, and I think we, we already touched on this a little bit, was that they struggle to change from being a person who talks like a scientist to other scientists to being someone who can boil things down and sell a story. And as much as the science has to be there and you have to be a team that's executing, you're still selling selling a story. And you have yeah. to have that ability to work on that. That's something we talk a lot about on this podcast is being able to sweep because we speak to a lot of quality and regulatory professionals and uh, making sure that you can speak the language of other departments. It sounds like that's another just skill that you have to have as the leader of a company is to be able to speak the language of those, the audience that you're, or knowing the audience that you're speaking to. Absolutely. I mean, anything you do in life and business and other, probably other things as well. You need to pay attention to who your audience is and gear things to your audience. You know, when you're a parent and you're talking to a four-year-old, you're going to explain it differently than you talk to the head of a medical department at university. And (laughs) people just need to keep that in mind at all times. Yeah, that makes sense. What other piece of advice or any last parting advice do you have if a company is getting ready to pitch to their first VC and they're nervous? Any any piece of advice that you have as we kind of close it up? You know, if you really, really are nervous about it, there are a lot of good programs out there to help you get ready in your due diligence room and your pitch and ready to get to that fundraising. And, you know, um, a few that come to mind are Springboard, if you're specifically a female entrepreneur, um, the Aspire program is really good. There are so many that I could make an exhaustive list, I'm sure, but but there are a lot of programs out there that can help you review your due diligence room and get ready for that. What I advise you to do is ask them some serious questions about what they provide you in order to get ready. What If you're really new to this, you need an example due diligence room. So you can copy that due diligence room and make your version of it. And you need the example deck, you know, whatever. And so make sure they're giving you the tools you need. And it's not a fluff layer, but really in-depth help. Okay. We'll put, we'll put links in the show notes to Springboard, the Aspire program. Um, Do you have your example deck or, or, or a, I don't know, video of you pitching that you're really proud of? Maybe we could put a link in there as well somewhere. Well, I mean, I think the, if we can find the the MedTech Innovator video. That's that's probably a, a pretty solid one for how we conveyed what the company could do very succinctly. I'm sure there are videos elsewhere. I hesitate to try and dig them up. No, nah, that's okay. That's okay. Well, I'll, I'll see if I can dig that one up. We're usually pretty good at finding what we need to find. So, <laughs> Very cool. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and, and, uh, and get a hold of you? LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, it's not hard to Google me. I think I might be the only Blythe Caro in the world. So <laughs> I'm stalking. Unfortunately, I can't get around it. Uh, I, I might be right there with you with the only Etienne Nichols. So, you know, I guess. <laughs> All right. Very cool. It's been really great talking to you, Blythe. I'm excited to see the future with where you go. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. All right. Take care. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask a special favor from you? Can you leave us a review on iTunes? I know most of us have never done that before, but if you're listening on the phone, look at the iTunes app, scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a review. It's actually really easy. Same thing with computer. Just look for that leave a review button. This helps others find us and it lets us know how we're doing. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. I I read and respond to every message because hearing your feedback is the only way I'm going to get better. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.